0: Now entering Nerdist.com.
1: Mission Log, A Roddenberry Star Trek Podcast, Episode 49. Return to Tomorrow.
2: Welcome to another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. In this receptacle, I am the thought energy of
0: John Champion. And in this receptacle, I am the thought energy of Ken Ray. Each week, we join our consciousness with an episode of Star Trek to see if we can determine the morals, messages, and meanings, and then we'll figure out if they stand the test of time, just like our robot bodies will in the future. (laughs) <laughs> Can some
2: uh, for some reason I picture you've already got a robot body in the works in the garage?
0: Grow the nanobots, dude. I am. I am absolutely. I, no, no, I got plans. Don't, I mean, don't yeah. misunderstand. I'm sure I've got drawings. Okay, right. I mean, and yeah. and sure I That's am funny. saving up for a 3D printer. But no, it's not <laughs> like I've got a robot body waiting. Otherwise, it wouldn't be waiting.
2: I <laughs> you don't you'd already be there. I, I picture the plans of the robot body. It's like here's a drawing of Ken and then you have on the other end of the wall you have the drawing of the robot body with the, you know, gears, levers eyeballs all that stuff and then in the middle you, you've seen that far side cartoon and then a miracle happens
0: well it's not the far side but yeah that is what you're talking about i will it say wasn't though, the Far Side. no Even i though? can't it's just sort of a it's one of those it's not the far side i do know that okay. but I, I also know what you're talking about uh no it, it, gears and levers though those are completely inefficient dude i'm building mine out of jelly just like the good That's people right. in return to tomorrow
2: And that is the episode that we're talking about in which the disembodied consciousnesses of three aliens decide to uh, spend a little time inside our Enterprise crew as they're building those robot bodies out of jelly and gears. Well, they they don't have gears, but they do
0: have uh, they have jelly and circuit boards. (laughs) They do have jelly and circuit boards. And I will say uh, you say they're spending time there. It's always good to have guests.
2: It is. It is. (laughs) You just want him to stay too long. It's like the end was, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. All right. So one thing that I would like to do before we get going on this fascinating story, Ken, is I'd like to drop a little trivia on you. Are you okay with that? I you know, I I just I've been waiting all week. Please hit me. All right, cool. Uh, So one thing that I do have to mention is that in our uh, continuing series of Roddenberry Discovered Documents, we have a story draft by John T. Dugan. And um, this one in particular is very interesting to me because he actually begins the draft with a discussion of these points that he wishes to explore. And uh, honestly, he lays out exactly what we do on Mission Log. He poses the questions about what happens when man has evolved so highly that he has conquered the material world and uh, kind of makes a case for trying to develop morally and ethically as well as technologically. And uh, he he basically spells it out that Sargon's people do not fare that well. They, They are not able to evolve morally and ethically without destroying themselves in the process because of their technology. But he makes a case for there being hope for mankind. So all of that is very interesting to read. So uh, please do check that out. Um, In addition to the story points that are a bit different. Um, He mentions one thing in that introduction uh, that greeted me just a tiny, tiny bit. Have you ever heard this kind of rumor, this bit of conventional wisdom that we only use a tiny portion of our brains? I've heard anywhere from three to seven percent. Scientifically, it's not true. um, But he does make that uh, uh, assertion in his uh, in his
0: introduction. Have you seen uh, defending your life?
2: Yeah, I love that Albert Brooks. Yeah, terrific. Albert, it's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. yeah
0: where, where, but the people who are sort of running the, the the trial system and the and the sort of between life place, right? They right. use like forty seven, forty eight percent. Do you know how much you use? Forty five, three.
2: <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> three. <laughs> right,
0: I right. use three percent of my brain. Yeah. <laughs> It's, yep. it's, it's what i thought of actually it's fun anyway that's that's not trivia for this that's trivia for the defending your life podcast that john and i will be starting in 15 years in the meantime
2: <laughs> coming soon um you'll be very glad to know ken that in this uh introduction uh this was kind of a duplicate earth again and uh, thank goodness we do not go down that path in the final episode at all because we saw how well that uh, worked out in miri um and the ending is uh, is quite a bit different you know the the moral slash message i would say is a bit more heavy handed i think what we end up with in this story is a little bit different um and i i would say that the the whole the, kind of the whole interaction plays out very differently there are a lot of similar plot points um including like the character traits and kind of the soul swapping that all kind of stays the same, but there are a lot of the, uh, the plot points that play out quite a bit differently. Um, And because of those differences, Dugan was not happy with the changes that were made to his original script. So he uses a nom de plume. Um, We have to say a big, big welcome to Diana Muldaur, who we'll see again in Star Trek later, but as different characters. So uh, that that is an important distinction as we're talking about the uh, the guest stars who show up.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> wait, wait a minute. Did, I, did you just have a moment, Ken? Um, have, uh, I had a weird moment with with Diana Muldaur in this. Okay, so it's 1980. Was it the first season that Gates McFadden left Next Gen? Like at the end of the it, first it season. At the end. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I'm a 17 year old, 18 year old boy, right? when the first season of uh, next generation is on and right. Gates McFadden. I, I had a, I had a thing for her. there. I'll just say it out loud. Mm. That's fine. I had okay. a thing for her. Right. And uh, she was replaced by Diana Muldauer for whom yeah. I did not have a thing. Mm. I mm. now have a thing for Diana mm. <laughs> 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 the, the minus 12 year old version of me or, you know, whatever. Um, yeah. It was, it was really, really, really good to see her in this episode. And there. there there's right. the sexism for this episode, okay? There's no sexism in this episode of Star Trek that I could find, uh, so I was sure to bring some to Mission Log.
2: I, you know, I, I have to agree with you, Matt. She's, yeah, yeah. she's fabulous. I actually but, don't think
0: it's sexist, by the way, to say that someone is attractive. She was, she was very attractive in this episode, and it was kind of, uh, yeah... It was neat to see. I'm I'm actually used to her as sort of the crusty Dr. Pulaski. You know, the I mean, mm-hmm. she's 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 woman bones basically in next gen, at least in some right. respects. And right. uh, so to see her play a very different kind of character and a much younger character too was interesting, and oh, yeah. uh, and also uh, interesting. <laughs>
2: right. Hey, um, the voice of Sargon. Any guess who did that? No clue. How about? Scotty himself, James Doohan. Really? Yeah, for real. (laughs) For real. He sounds like um, not only one of the game thralls or the the game masters from Triskelion, but kind of like the Guardian of Forever. But no, that is James Doohan doing the
0: voice of Sargon. See, I actually wondered. It didn't even occur to me to check, but I wondered if it was uh, Shatner doing it, because when it goes from... You know, the disembodied voice to the Shatner voice, they put so much processing on it that you're like, oh, oh you right. know, that could have been that could have been him doing a voice, but it was actually James Doohan not doing a voice. Well, maybe it's James
2: Doohan doing a Shatner voice, <laughs>
0: doing, you know, if <laughs> Shatner didn't pause quite as much <laughs> right. when he's talking. Yeah. Speaking
2: of Scotty, uh, there's a scene where he walks into the lab where Thalesa, uh, is working on the robot. And and I believe that he is actually holding the prop that was, you ready for it? <laughs> Norman's robot guts. <laughs> I swear that little piece that he's holding is Norman's robot guts. I guarantee you. And finally, uh, Billy Blackburn is somebody we have not mentioned uh, yet on our podcast, though he's worth mentioning because – a, he shows up as uh, as a featured extra very often in Star Trek. And if you own the uh, the Blu-ray sets of Star Trek, then you will see many of his home movies that he shot on the set. Um, and this, I think, is just a very interesting place to point him out uh, that he is inside that latex robot suit.
0: Creepiest character in this episode.
1: compressing 500,000 years of history into 10 minutes or less. Return with us now to the thrilling story of Return to Tomorrow.
0: Prologue. The Enterprise is being drawn somewhere by someone or something. They're further out in space than any human ship has ever been before. They're following a distress signal, though, from whom and for what no one, not even Spock, can say. What they come across is a planet, a bit like Earth, except much older, and completely dead, its atmosphere having been ripped away about a half a million years ago. So what the heck? A big, echoing, booming voice assures Captain Kirk, by name, that all will be answered in time. He is Sargon, and he is dead. And he'd really like to talk to Kirk. And if that scares Kirk, then all of mankind will die. Act 1. Strange new life and new civilizations is what the Enterprise does, so Kirk decides to stay and investigate. Spock says he's found both energy and the chamber on sensors 100 miles below the planet's surface. Shouldn't be possible to beam to it, though Sargon says he can make that work. Kirk decides to take McCoy down to check stuff out, Though a flick of the power on the Enterprise. All of it lets Kirk know that Sargon would really like it if Spock came too. So, it's Kirk, Spock, McCoy, two red shirts, and... Well, hello. And you are? She is Dr. Anne Mulhall, astrobiology. She was sort of ordered to the landing party, probably by Sargon. Sargon uses the Enterprise to beam the landing party down, minus the red shirts. One hundred miles below the surface, Spock is impressed by the chamber. It's about half a million years old, likely built around the time whatever destroyed the surface destroyed the surface. A door opens at one end of the chamber, revealing a light-up globe. This is Sargon. Well, kind of. This is a receptacle holding the life force and energy of Sargon. He used to have a body, but now, eh, not so much. He's also got this weird habit of referring to the Enterprise crew as my children. Well, his children, but when he says it, it's my children. He thinks it's possible that they are the result of his races colonizing the galaxy 6,000 centuries ago. Dr. Mulhall doesn't think that that's the case for humans, though Spock says that would explain a lot about Vulcans. So what happened to Sargon and his people? Well, they sort of failed the crisis that all civilizations that survive long enough reach. Their brains got too big. They thought themselves gods. Doesn't explain what happened exactly, but it is fairly ominous. So what can Kirk and company do for Sargon? He'd like to borrow their bodies. Something he explains by inhabiting Kirk's body and putting Kirk's dim, little energy into the globe receptacle. Wow. Feels good to be in a body for Sargon. It's been half a million years, after all. Also, Kirk's body is excellent. Don't worry, he'll give it back. Yeah, maybe he could do that soon, though. Mulhall and McCoy say his heart's going too fast and his temperature's going too high for the Kirk body. At this rate, he will kill Kirk. Well, that might make this next part awkward. See, there are uh, there are two more just like me in the other room. I'd like one to borrow Mulhall's body and one to borrow Spock's. We need them so that we may live again. Act 2. Meet the glowing globe receptacles of Hanok and Thalesa. Thalesa is Sargon's wife. While many of the best minds were chosen to survive, only three have made it for these 500,000 years, including Hanok, who was on the opposite side of whatever battle destroyed their planet from Sargon and Thalesa. If it's cool, they would like to borrow the bodies of Kirk, Spock, and Mulhall for a bit, just long enough to build humanoid robots to inhabit. And now if you'll excuse me, I need to get out of Kirk's body. Kirk is conscious of everything that happened while he was away, and he is all for it. Mulhall and McCoy are not so sure, so Sarkon says, Hey, no rush. Go back to your ship. Talk it over. Everybody's got to be cool with this or it's not cool. Back aboard the Enterprise, they talk it over. Kirk is still all for it. Scotty thinks it sounds crazy. McCoy thinks it sounds indecent. And Spock and Mulhall are turned on by the scientific possibilities. Kirk makes an impassioned plea to McCoy. Yes, this is dangerous, but where there are no risks, there are no rewards. And the rewards here could be awesome, and risk is our business. It's what we do. Bones may not be excited, but he'll go along. Three receptacles to beam up, and in no time, the bodies of Kirk, Mulhall, and Spock are inhabited by Sargon, Thalesa, and Henoch. Henoch is totally turned on by being alive, and by Nurse Chapel, and he tells her so. Thalesa is also stoked to breathe again, to feel again. And by the way, husband, way to choose a smoking hot bod for yourself. Hey, back at you, sweets. Now let's make out. In other people's bodies. Hanok is impressed with Spock's body. It is way better than the human bodies. He tells McCoy that it's weird that the Vulcans never conquered the humans. McCoy explains that the Vulcans worship peace above all else. "'Oh, yeah,' says Hanok. "'Just like we do.'" The new inhabitants are too much for the bodies of Kirk and Mulhall. Spock's body can take it, though. Hannock says he'll make a concoction that'll make the other bodies work for Sargon and Thalisa. He takes Nurse Chapel to help him, though he doesn't do exactly what he says he'll do. Henoch sabotages the formula meant to keep Kirk's body going. He wants to keep Spock's body for himself, but to make that happen, the Kirk-Sargon combo will have to die. Chapel picks up on the ruse, though Henoch erases that part of Chapel's memory. Act 3. Bones is worried, but all seems to be going okay. The construction of android robots is underway. Sargon and Thalesa are getting touchy-feely during their work, though Hannock points out that all the feeling parts will be gone once they're in their robot bodies. Sargon says, sure, but our big brains will still work, and we can help people. Yeah, says Hannock. That'll be great. Sargon goes woozy, though he says he'll be fine after the next injection. Chapel's preparing those, and there's, um... Uh, there's something about that, um... Wow, weird. I had something to say, but, uh... Yeah, I guess everything's great. Thalesa continues work on her robot body, giving Scotty, the engineer, a glimpse at their advanced abilities. A chiding Henoch shoes Scotty out of the lab, though. And now he starts to work on Thalesa. Robot bodies are going to suck, and you know it. We should totally keep these bodies. We can help people that way. Thalisa's against the idea, though she's also starting to hate the idea of the robot bodies. On another deck, Sargon calls to McCoy. He's not doing so well. He's checking Henoch's formula, but everything looks okay. Now Thalisa starts trying to talk Sargon into keeping the bodies that they're in right now. He answers her by dropping dead. Act 4. McCoy is able to stabilize Kirk's body, but Sargon is gone, and Kirk's stuck in his receptacle. Hennot continues working on Thelais' robot body, though when it's done, she says she can't live in that thing. She goes to McCoy, promising a way to save Kirk. There's just one condition. She'd like to keep Mulhall's body. Cool? Come on, you barely even knew Mulhall. Just keep it quiet. Look, we could take your ship and anybody we want. You're a tiny little brain. You ought to be worshipping me. I can make you writhe in pain with my thoughts, like I'm doing right now. Okay, my bad. Got a little carried away there. You know, Sargon was right. I really can't be trusted with a living body. The temptations are just too great. That's what I wanted to hear, says Sargon. Turns out he wasn't dead. He had transferred his consciousness to the Enterprise. Now he's got a plan. One that involves Nurse Chapel. And not Dr. McCoy. Don't let the door slide India on the way out. Two shakes of the ship and McCoy is free to head back to sickbay, where he finds Kirk and Kirk's body, Mulhall and Mulhall's body, and all three receptacles burned and broken, and Spock's consciousness gone. Ah, well, nothing to be done, according to Kirk. Make a potion that'll kill Spock's body too, please. Kirk and Mulhall head to the bridge, where hanok is taken over. The problem is hanok is still super smart and super powerful. He stops everybody who tries to stop him. Everybody, that is, except Nurse Chapel. She manages to inject Hanok with the poison, killing him and Spock's body. Kirk mourns the loss of his friend, but... Come on, this is Spock we're talking about. Sargon couldn't let that happen. He shoved Spock's consciousness into Nurse Chapel for a bit. Now Spock's back in Spock's body. And Sargon and Thalysa have to pass into eternity. After they borrowed the bodies of Kirk and Mulhall for one last kiss now into oblivion together forever and never to part the end that was beautiful you like the rick roll at the end <laughs> I, <laughs> that was excellent <laughs>
2: yeah yeah um Boy, there, there are a lot of little uh, observations that I had about this one. I, by the way, were they mourning Spock uh, a bit more in this than they were in the immunity syndrome? It's hard to tell because whenever you mourn Spock, it just goes by really fast. Yeah, they,
0: I mean, a bit more, but not much more. I mean, okay. you know, uh, definitely Kirk was more into the fact that Spock was dead and sad about it. Uh, yeah. But I think screen time, we maybe got four extra seconds of Ah, oh, Spock.
2: Man, I just I hope one day that guy gets a proper funeral. I really do. <laughs> you
0: know, we might spend years mourning Spock before we know, you know, whether or not he's going to make it or not. Exactly. Nah.
2: Hey, um, uh, did you notice that Kirk mentioned the Apollo program again before we actually got one off the ground? This was actually after the uh, the launch pad disaster, uh, the Apollo 1 mission that killed uh, Gus Grissom. But it was before we had actually launched one, and certainly still years before we got to the moon.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's kind of so, interesting. Uh, I mean, when you say years before, yeah. it was about a year and a half before. Yeah. 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 I mean, which is still, but, I mean, it, but the Apollo mission was like a, I mean, it was a thing.
2: Well, it was a thing, but but, all, all, but by the time this, air, uh, this episode aired, right. we had lost the three astronauts on the launch pad and then nothing for a long, long time, because that was a huge disaster. (laughs) Okay. um,
0: I mean, yeah, it's it's a little, I I guess maybe you could say it's a tiny bit attempting fate, although what I I would say is it's actually, I mean, they're sitting there saying, in 300 years, we're going to you know, have interstellar travel and we're going to have transporters and you're not going to have to cut into people to actually cut into people if you're going to perform surgery or something like that. So, I mean, to go out on a limb and say in the next year and a half to two years, we're going to do this thing that we're already planning to do. That's literally on the launch pad. I mean, yeah, it's, I mean, it is neat. It, it, It would be very much a, I guess, putting yourself back in 1968, it would very much be a, wow, neat. That thing that's supposed to happen, like, you know, next year is actually part of the history of this show. Yeah, that is kind of cool. Yeah. Now that you yeah. Well,
2: it. it was still, you know, like I said, it was in flux. It was, it, it was a, a, a terrible tragedy that they were lost. And it was a huge risk. And when I say the word risk, I think we know where we're going on this. We take risk risks. Is our risk is our yeah. business. I, it's what we do. I hope, I hope, Ken, that you did exactly that I did. And as, whenever you watch this episode, you stop, you stand up, and you give it a slow clap. You start the slow lap because I'm compelled to do that whenever that moment happens.
0: I absolutely did not do that.
2: Uh, you should try it next time.
0: All you know. right. Well, I'll see what I can do.
2: Enjoy. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, we touched again on the idea here of aliens maybe being a part of uh, Earth's development. It's not the thrust of the story, but, you know, there, there's this distant possible relationship. They don't explore it too much, but, you know, Sarkin <laughs> keeps calling Kirk his son-
0: you know, you know what I no. wondered about uh, was What's like, that? had had we gone ahead and gotten the robot bodies, you know, Hennock yeah. and uh, and Sargon and Thalesa, um, mm-hmm. might we have ended up with sort of a Prometheus thing where they, they see, you know, what happened? like maybe they go back into the historical archives and they're watching reruns of, you know, I don't know, like the Real Housewives of Orange County or something and they, <laughs> like have a Prometheus moment like, no, no, this has gone terribly, terribly wrong. Let's get get me <laughs> right. some black goo in here. Uh, cause we, we gotta, we gotta, we gotta fix what we broke. I gotta ask a question. Did, um, yeah, yeah. and I'm kind of surprised actually that we're not putting this in topics, but since you say it's not a major thrust of the story, I guess that's, I guess we'll sure. go, go ahead and do it outside of that. Uh, did yeah. the alien forefather, uh, thing bother you as much here as it did in who mourns for Adonai? Because I remember you were like intensely offended <laughs> by the idea that I, we, I, we didn't I, do I, this ourselves follow- in who mourns I, for Adonai. I, I,
2: I, I was I was a little more disappointed because I I, I don't really jive with that whole thing. I, I, I think it's I I don't know. I, I I think when you treat that kind of thing seriously and outside the realm of fiction, then I, I definitely have a big, big problem with it. I think in this I didn't hate it nearly as much as Who Mourns for Adonai for two reasons. I mean, one is that um we kind of introduced the idea. We introduced it very vaguely. Sargon just says, yeah, you know, 600,000 years ago, we had ships all over the place. We kind of lost track of what happened to that. We may or may not be related, but that's not what's important. We we have some similarities. We may or may not be related. And then, um, Mulhall steps right in and she kind of says, no, 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 no. Um, we, we pretty much know that, uh, you, you know, we've, we've got the emergence of this strain of primates about 600,000 years ago. And you could finish that sentence by saying, and Homo sapiens don't appear for about another 400,000 years after that. So they kind of introduced it, but they kind of dropped it. It, it was less important in this. So I didn't really, I didn't really have a big problem with that.
0: I'm going to hit you with a couple of other things really quickly as far as this goes. Um, sure. I guess first of all, it is a bit more Prometheus than it was Who Mourns Adam Than I? Because in Prometheus, we actually see that basically, you know, plant the seeds of life on Earth. Whereas in Who Mourns for Than I, we know that that guy, Apollo, that they're talking to, uh, had appeared to extant humans at some point in the past. I mean, they, right. people were able to worship,
2: leadership. right? Yeah. People
0: were able to worship Apollo as a god because they had seen Apollo do godlike things. Um, what about 2001? Does it bother you in what 2001 that we, that we got like, you know, we got, you know, ape group A and ape group B and it was interference by some sort of alien, you mm. know, something that actually moved yeah. one of those versions along and the other one sort of died out?
2: Yeah, that's interesting. I I guess, uh, boy, here's a whole other podcast for us. Yeah, I mean, I I guess it depends on how literally you take what happens in 2001, you know. Um, It's kind of funny in the early drafts of that. They literally had the monolith as like a TV that would, you know, that that would teach these apes, basically bring them education to to be better than what they are. Um, I hope it, it wasn't
0: showing The Real Housewives of Orange County.
2: No, no. no. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess it's two very different things if you go down that path of, well, we're here, we evolved, but then we used outside influence for our education and our betterment. Um, because at that point, well, anything is an outside influence. It just matters how far you look, um, as opposed to actually being seated here by. Some genetic material or or biological material, which is a whole other interesting topic in and of itself. You know, if um, the very idea that there may be uh, bacteria or, or chemistry that exists on a meteor that has been hitting planets all over the galaxy for hundreds of thousands, hundreds of millions of years might have some influence on what life arose there. I think the problem is, for me, when you get into this idea of fully formed human beings just sort of plopping down on Earth, and that's what became the human beings that we have today. You know, I I think that's where I have a bigger problem with it. All right. Yeah. (laughs) But hey, but hey, (laughs) I got to point out before we move on, Spock and Chapel shared a little consciousness, and I think Chapel was pretty excited about that. Yeah, now you make me soup.
1: (laughs) I kind of envy Sargon, Thalesa, and Hanuk. After half a million years, life is still a ball.
2: Should we chalk this one up to carbon chauvinism? Because here it's the bad guy who wants the human body. And he goes around tempting the others with the human body. You know, the more benevolent one here, Sargon, is much more accepting of his state. He he sort of understands their past transgressions. He understands where they are. And he's trying to live as best as he can without upsetting the state of things around him. The entire time, he's very transparent to everybody. Mm-hmm. And so, so he, he's a very interesting alien so far that we've encountered, super advanced, and yet totally open and kind instead of just saying like, well, too bad, puny humans. We'll see you later.
1: <laughs> you <know?
0: laughs> he, is a very different, he is a very different kind of alien than we've come across, although it is interesting when they say, oh, every civilization that lasts this long reaches this you know, crisis moment. And mm-hmm. for some, it's worked out, and for some, it hasn't. Going back through it, like the Met- Metrons, they seem right. to be fine. Um, the Tolosians, not so fine, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. and I'm assuming that that's still the same kind of crisis, right, where we evolve to a point where, where we can take our super brain and do something really amazing, or we can screw it up, which is both you know encouraging that we're going to eventually get to superbrain maybe but also sort of mm-hmm. discouraging that like wow so even when we get that good there's still plenty of time for us to screw this whole thing up
2: well yeah i mean their their ultimate sin is what pride i you know the the yeah you know the the crisis i i think is academic at that point there's talk of nuclear uh weapons in this episode but Clearly, Sargon and his race have evolved even far beyond that. Right. You know, they, they they made it through the whole thing that um, taste of Armageddon. You know that that that's puny. <laughs> they, right. they probably made it through their whole period of computer warfare. Uh, but he says that then they thought of themselves as gods. And, mm-hmm. and that's when everything started to fall apart. Well,
0: okay, but is is that I mean, is that the crisis, though, or is the crisis just what do you do when you gain almost ultimate power? Okay, so their particular failing right. was, okay, well, wait, so we thought we were gods, and then we tried to do too much, and that apparently led to the destruction of our civilization. Uh, the Gamesters of Triskelion actually made it to that same crisis point. And what did they mm-hmm. do? They started playing games with other people's mm-hmm. lives. <laughs> that's, right. you know, that's what they did. What did the Telosians do? They're kind of a different race, actually, because they were, as far as we know, you know just sort of groovy humans who then had some cataclysm on you know on the planet's surface, so they went underground, and that 's when they started working on their you know brain abilities and but then once they had that crisis, well, obviously what we need are slaves so let 's get yeah. us some of those, no, not to fight you know play games for us, but to actually build things and take us back to the surface right right i don't know i mean is so I mean is the crisis just what happens when you get too much power? And then there, are, again, like a million ways to blow it. And then, I mean, there are also ways to not. I mean, you've got, um, oh, uh, Blaylock? Blaylock? Baylock, Baylock from uh, from I am Baylock from the Corvamite <laughs> maneuver. Right? He seems. I mean, his only thing is he's kind of afraid of what people are going to think of. You know what he looks like. But sure, I mean he's ultra funny. Well, yeah, right. He looks like a kid. He's yeah. like Ron yeah. Howard's brother for crying out loud. I he's God, ult- he's ultra powerful, but you know, he's also he seems to be, you know, going along fine in the universe. There's Trelane's parents. I mean, they're trying to raise mm-hmm. this, you know, hyper brain kid, and that's not necessarily going so well, but otherwise they got it going on. There are, as yeah. we mentioned before, the Metrons. There's um who was it in uh um uh, uh with the Klingon? Come on.
2: Oh, the Arcanians. Thank you.
0: Yeah. I mean, they seem to actually be doing okay, too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I don't know that we actually know what the crisis is unless the crisis is. I mean, it doesn't feel like pride was the thing. It feels like pride was the thing this time. It feels more like the crisis is. It's almost like the crisis is living too long. (laughs) If that makes any sense. Surviving too long. Sure. Now, I got a question. Okay. They seem, as far as I'm concerned, and this will surprise you. As okay. far as I'm concerned, they seem to have a pretty good plan. Let's build robot <laughs> bodies, right? Sure. <laughs> can yeah. we back up I, for I'm a i I'm with you. The very okay. first thing that I'm going to work on, if I'm working on my robot body, and as we've discussed, I've got the plans. The very first thing I'm right. going to work on is making sure that I can feel what I want to feel before I inhabit that robot body. And that's not to say I'm just going to be able to flip a switch and turn on happiness. But you know who says you can do that now? Uh, Tony Robbins and Deepak Chopra. I mean, there are people who oh, think yeah. that you can go ahead and okay. do that today. So the idea Sign of me up. well the idea though of you're building a robot brain you know you can build functionality into it that will react with you know sort of happiness um I'm going to tell a story and it's going to seem like it's not going to make any sense but I remember it still almost 20 years later the saddest thing mm-hmm. that I ever saw was a kid learning to laugh at something that was not funny he Wait, was what? I know so he so I- he's his kid It really was horrible, and it's burned into my head. And this kid has got to be like in his early 20s now, and he's probably still doing this. He's probably watching (laughs) reruns of of The Brady Bunch and thinking it's the most hysterical thing ever. And that little boy's name was Commander Data. (laughs) (laughs) No, here's the thing. So so this kid's getting out of a car, right? And his friend, a six-year-old, riding in the back of the car as well. Mom's driving in the front seat, whatever. Kid in the back of the car says something. And it was obviously meant to be a joke to make the other kid laugh. And the other Mm -hmm. kid didn't laugh. And the kid in the back of the car says it, says, I said, and then repeats a stupid joke louder. And the kid going into the house turns around and goes, ha ha. And that's it. That is, I mean, at that point, that kid started down the road to ruin as far as I'm concerned. Now, here's the thing. We learn to enjoy things that are not inherently enjoyable throughout our lives. There is nothing sure. inherently better about Steely Dan than there is about the Chemical Brothers. But somewhere along the way, you might choose to like Steely Dan and I choose to like the Chemical Brothers or vice versa. Or we might learn to hate both of those in favor of the Dixie Chicks or or Toby Keith. Well, well, Or, well. or we might hate all of those in favor of Mozart or Beethoven. We are constantly learning what to like and what not to like. and And there sure. are a million things that go into that. And just having a robot brain... <laughs> <laughs> does not mean <laughs> that you're not going to feel. I, I'm not a carbon chauvinist. I think we have discussed this a time or two. Silicon well, forever. Get your T-shirt. You tell know, your they've, friends. They,
2: they, they, they've had a half a million years to work on it.
0: Well, that, you know? that was the other thing that was kind of weird. So they're ultra powerful. Yeah. They can control the ship. They can talk to, you know, to the ship from from far, far, far away. But they're apparently not talking between terrariums.
2: <laughs> <laughs> right, right.
0: That was that was a, that was an odd sort of. I mean, it's a minor thing because had they been yeah. able to do that, then obviously there's no story because they haven't been able to work out with Hanok over they half a million years.
2: Well, you you could make a uh, you could make a case for it that that they have no machinery or whatever it is that they need to do. You, you know, all they have is their little consciousness terrarium to play with, and that's it. <laughs> but it does seem like if they're that far evolved, you could almost do a Tolosian thing and use that sort of power of illusion to then distract yourself to, to do other things. But whatever, that, that's a whole speculative argument <laughs> way, way down the road. Yeah. But I have to ask you, Ken, has the crew of the Enterprise evolved a bit here? I, I pose that to you, that they may have evolved. Now, our listeners who know, um, I, I would say at this point, almost our are, are sick fetish for Dr. Roger Corby are <laughs> <laughs> probably not surprised to hear his name invoked in this episode, but, but we have to compare these uh, stories. So, when we met Dr. Corby, uh, we were ready to get rid of that guy in no time, and, and his plan in no time. But here, Kirk's scientific curiosity is aroused. And Kirk is the one in that great speech who is tempting his crew the way that either Corby or even Harry Mudd did. He's mm-hmm. telling Scotty, Look, uh, warp engine the size of a walnut, and, yeah. and he goes around the table. And and McCoy is incensed, and you cut back to Scotty, and he's like, "No, seriously, walnut?" Because we should <laughs> talk,
0: <laughs> you know? Yeah, I don't know the, I don't know how evolved they are here. Honestly, I think it really has to do with permission versus theft. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's the fact that Sargon is being upfront with them. The fact that Sargon is saying, "I want to borrow your body." I mean, and and yeah. he even that even goes about. I don't know. You could almost say it's sort of like what uh, Kirk said. I guess it was to the Organians where, you know, the Organians are like, you know, you could take whatever you want from us. No, that wasn't the Organians. I can't remember who it was. But uh, when they're uh, trying to get the lithium crystals from some alien, the alien's like, no, no, you can't have it because you might use it for war someday. And then the alien says, well, you know, you could take this. And Kirk's like, yeah, Mm -hmm. we could, but we're not gonna. Um, We're talking about
2: Mirror Mirror. Yeah.
0: Yes, that's right. Thank you, mirror, yep. mirror. Mm-hmm. Uh You get the same thing. You kind of get the same thing here from uh, from Sargon. He shows them, look, I could take your body. And you actually have yeah. uh, Thalesa uh, uh, say it later. Yeah, I could take your body. I could take your ship. I could take everything. All right. I right. want permission. I think that's why I think that's probably why Kirk and, and crew are so cool with it. Now, what I do think is kind of funny is we're assuming that they don't have a policy of non-interference as well. Probably, um, yeah, big time. And, yeah. and we're OK with that. No, 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 people from this other planet. I can't, I can't give you a gun that's not flintlock because that, that leaps <laughs> like, like 400 years ahead of where you are. Oh, oh, you have technology that'll leap us 10,000 years? Yeah, we'll take some of that, please. I mean, yeah. why can, is it?
2: Can, can we talk about that walnut engine
0: again? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, even yeah. Spock. Even Spock is like, "Wow, we could seriously, we could kick some major butt if we had this." Yeah. Not not in a military way. More like we could just skip the next ten thousand years of you know trying to learn this and figure it out ourselves. Er, no, you know it'd be great. Just hand me all of it. <laughs> <laughs>
2: right. So, no, you're exactly right.
0: Yeah. Why is the Prime Directive cool then? Why is the policy of non-interference cool for everybody, but us?
2: Yeah. Well, you know, we we do say that a a pre-industrial and specifically a pre-warp society are. Mm-hmm. Are, are off limits when it comes to the prime directive except for every opportunity that kirk says no we will violate the prime directive so maybe kirk and sargon are on the same page here yeah and like well we, we we have these rules but we like to think of them more as helpful suggestions
0: yeah come on gimme i'm your son remember how i've been your children <laughs>
2: Right. Give to right. Me. Well, and, and you know, it, here's the big thing. It, you know, Sargon and Corby are different uh, in, let's say that Sargon is less eugenics <laughs> than Corby. Sargon is less interested in taking over the world. But I think there is that relation on some level, uh, something that Sargon sees in humans from Earth that he can relate to, he can reason with. And, and maybe they've spent the last half million years trying to look for uh, uh, people that they could do this with. And every time a Klingon ship flew by, they were like, no, 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 no. Just stay quiet. Stay in your brain terrarium. <laughs> we're going to wait this one out. <laughs> and we'll keep working on our robot plans. And when the right people come along, we'll talk to them.
0: Yeah, they might have even seen Balog, but his robots were crap yeah right <laughs> it's
2: they're like come like, on it looks like a giant puppet all
0: right, it's kidding? all wooden and stiff you want to look like that i don't want to look like that no 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 we'll
2: wait we'll wait so you know one thing that um we learn about sargon's people is that they went to great lengths to destroy each other mm-hmm. you assume a, a very advanced very um uh A thoughtful, clearly, society. And they went to great lengths to destroy each other. And then they went to the work of preserving what they could. Um, In that one room, there were about a dozen of those containers. Only three of them survived. And uh, it's interesting that we do this too. So I don't know if this is kind of like a a Cold War parallel here. Um, You you remember what was revealed a few years ago? That bunker that was built under the Greenbrier Hotel in Virginia? You know, we're absolutely sure that we're going to destroy ourselves one way or another. And they built this massive complex where you could evacuate most of our government into. And they had hospital beds. They had TVs. They had rooms. They had food. They had all of this stuff. And we have all kinds of programs like that from tiny little bunkers to uh, this project of saving seeds. You know, what one kind of every seed for every plant that exists on Earth in the event that we destroy ourselves. And on Sargon's planet, they went to the trouble of saving minds perpetually, which I thought was a really interesting idea. Because if we do run into that problem here on Earth where we face a crisis, well, who gets picked to survive? Who gets to go into that bunker? Mm-hmm. And who doesn't?
0: You know, that is interesting. You say that Sargon um, is less eugenicsy than Dr. Corby. Mm-hmm. Who chose the mines and how were they well, chosen? I mean, we're given to understand yeah. that Sargon was kind of a leader here. Now, it's interesting that he chose to save somebody from the other side. I mean, Hanok mm. was fighting on, you know, the opposite side or disagreed to some level. Right. Um, yeah, We don't really have a clear idea of what the war was or what the, what the crisis was, what the, what the inflection point was on their right. planet. But, I mean, it must have been pretty bad because no atmosphere. Great food. Yeah. <laughs> great food but no atmosphere. Thank you very much. Two shows nightly be sure and tip your thing. Um I mean I kinda uh, the thing that bothers me about what you're talking about, seeds I'm cool with. But that whole thing mm-hmm. about, oh, we're gonna save great minds, great minds probably what got you there. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean part of me is like it would have been cool if it had been like Sargon, the great and powerful, and like a plumber and a barber, or, you know, like, like a some comedian, guy, some, a comedian, a comedian would be yeah. fantastic. Yeah, I know that joke was really great. Half a million years ago. <laughs> Seriously, <laughs> half a million years. You can't work on new material. <laughs> what is up with glass terrariums? Okay. I don't know. I mean, it's, there's something, there's something, well, there's something a tiny bit eugenics about it, or at least there may be. yeah. yeah. And what we ended up with was still kind of, I mean, what you ended up with was sort of like Mama Bear, Papa Bear, and Baby Bear in a way. Or actually, what I, what I, my original notes were um, that, uh, oh, that Kirk, Mulhall, and Spock are inhabited by Odin, Odin's wife, and Loki. Mm. I mean, that's kind of what happens. Nice. I mean, he's yeah. like, like the guy, uh, Hennock, is, is really just kind of a foil. I mean, he's very much, yeah, totally. he's, he's evil. I mean, he he is the opposite side. Being saved by the, I guess we're going to call them the good guys, really has not affected him in any way. The second he has a chance to go out and be bad again, um, yeah, that's, that's what he's going to do because that's what he is. Not unlike Loki.
2: Right. And it's interesting that Sargon didn't see that coming. You know, it's like, hey uh, – the Laysa and I are going to go off and do this human thing for a little bit. We'll get back to you when we see how that goes. <laughs> exactly. Because you can't be
0: trusted. Yeah, let's put build um, him a robot body and put him straight into it.
2: Right. Yeah. Uh, th- there's something that, it, you know, there's an episode that you and I did not like very much, uh, Cat's Paw. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's something similar here in that that once you take the aliens and you put them into a physical human form that's what leads them to temptation you know um and and if there's kind of a humanistic message here it's about sort of overcoming our own negative traits uh these beings are very similar to humans and and hennec you know you compared him to loki and he's he's manipulative and selfish sargon is benevolent um and and they've been fighting this out in their own way for far longer than we have and they still haven't found the answer they they haven't been able to figure this out yet Um, you know like i said in the trivia the writer was trying to make a point about humans possibly being able to survive and thrive um, even with these multiple personality traits that we have. Um, but I, I thought it was interesting that the, the human flesh for them anyway is what presents that temptation.
0: See, it's interesting to me that you hear a humanistic uh, message in there, or a humanism message in there, because the only message mm-hmm. that I got is we can't. We're not going to win. We're not going to get over it, even if we get to, you know, big brain, super brain. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and still in the end. I mean, the answer for Sargon and Thalesa was, okay, you know what we're going to do? Let's kill ourselves. And maybe you can say, well, they sacrifice themselves. Maybe you can make a whole, like you know, even a Christ-like analogy there, if you want to. But mm-hmm. but they're telling themselves the same stories that we tell ourselves. We will be together forever in death, in oblivion. I mean, we're mm-hmm. you know, and you yeah. promise we're going to be together forever. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I've, I've never, <laughs> I've never <laughs> sure. actually been to oblivion, so I can't say. Here's what I will guarantee, though: uh, we will both be together, not here, walking around. <laughs> Yeah, I mean that's really yeah yeah about the only thing that he can guarantee there, and I mean the ultimate message seems to be yeah you gotta know when to see, you gotta know when to hold them, know when to fold them. Almost seems to be the almost seems to be the message. I mean, there's going to be a point where you've just kind of been here too long, and it may be time to say sayonara.
2: Well, it's a little bit of a contrived tragic ending. You know that that is one of the things that uh, Dugan did not like about the change to his. Original script and and I could kind of see that like you know can't they go hang out with Trelane's mom and dad or Apollo's people apparently there's all these you know energy beings just out there in the universe places lousy with them <laughs> fly a spaceship without hitting one eventually right um, but it, you know and maybe this is just sort of relying too much on that original story draft uh, that that he was trying to make this point about humans having a better shot. Uh, but I, I see what you mean, you know, it, at least in this story with these characters, with Sargon and Thalesa, they they take that path of saying, well, we have to do this. And I'm thinking about well, hey, you still have a robot body. You, you could still
0: go to the lab. You don't have to do this. Yeah. Um, they take so the Tolosian route, honestly. Remember the Tolosians hmm. were like, oh, no, no, you, you can't. We can't even work a trade deal with you because... You'll learn how to do this, and you'll just screw it up the way we've just screwed it up. So you go ahead. We'll die. We'll die eventually. I mean, that's the difference. I mean, Sargon and Thalysia are dead by the end of this episode, whereas the Tolosians, who knows how long it's going to take them.
2: And, and if you're Scotty, before they leave, you're just like, hey, uh, before you go, remember <laughs> that warp engine on a walnut? Yeah, there was just... talk.
0: There was talk of just a <laughs> little, could, maybe, could you
1: show me a tiny, no, no. Uh. Were the centuries in waiting all for naught, or are there still lessons to be learned from Sargon, Thalesa, and Hennep?
0: Why does this moment fall to me? (laughs) Time now to uh, suss out the messages, morals, and meanings of this episode, and uh, figure out whether it stands the test of time. Why does this moment fall to me, John? It seems like I'm always the guy who's asking these questions.
2: You just, I, I don't know. You, you shy away from this moment, but I love this moment. Oh,
0: I don't shy just away from this it. moment. I'm there. I'm just wondering okay. why I'm the one who always says, so. <laughs> but having said that,
2: so. Yeah. What do you think? So. So, if I were to put this in a nutshell, like maybe a walnut shell, um, and try to figure out if this episode holds up, I, I would say that the fun here, part of the fun here, is watching the crew that we know act out of character. Mm-hmm. So sort of like the fun of watching a TV show, we know that these are actors, we know the characters that they play, but now we get to watch them do something else. And you may even get a giggle out of uh, Shatner's interesting physical contortions whenever he is either in pain or being inhabited by Sargon. Uh, that's certainly entertaining.
0: It um, is but, almost always interesting to see Spock smile. It It is y- almost, yes, it's yes. almost never good. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, usually we know it he's happens, up to something. Something bad has happened. The one time that he smiled where where you're like, oh, that's okay, is when he realized at the end of a mock time that uh that Kirk wasn't dead. That that's yeah. that's okay. Otherwise it's like, yeah, well, you know, either he's been you know huffing spores or he's been taken over by another <laughs> consciousness or who knows what's yeah. going on. But if Spock's smiling, yeah, you know, batting down the hatches because probably something's not good. Yeah. But it is but it is neat to say I mean it's great because you get you know, season after season and then movie after movie of a very stoic Leonard Nimoy playing uh, Spock. And so mm-hmm. just to see Nimoy walking around going, <laughs> it's like, wow, right. that is so he can do that. That's neat.
2: Yeah. So the, it's, it's a lot of fun without being jokey. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're not writing jokes in there, but, but there is a sort of element of sly humor that we're making these characters be Different. So I really like that just as a piece of storytelling. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing that works here is this is just one of those pieces of kind of pure science fiction that, that's so good when Star Trek does it and does it well uh, because you get the character element and you get the fascinating points to ponder about humanity's future and what, you know, what do we do when our knowledge and our technology sort of runs at a faster pace than our ability to be moral and civil and ethical to each other. You know, these are all just really great ideas. And, and I, I touched on it just a little bit to say that this could have been um, something kind of influenced, at least by the Cold War, to say, okay, there is this reality we live with that we could destroy each other. So what do we do either, A, to stop that, or B, how do we conceive of a world when we've done that? You know, what what part of us survives? You know, this is all really great kind of heady stuff. Um, So to me, I I really, really like this episode quite a lot. Does it hold up? Absolutely it holds up. Um, I I think it's a great watch. and, And I was so glad when we got around to this in the schedule because this is one of those that I've seen a lot and I knew that I wanted to watch it again and again.
0: Yeah, yeah. I will say that I don't know what the messages are honestly mm-hmm. and i and the messages that i you know sort of start to pull out i don't know that i agree with um mm-hmm. but i love it <laughs> i found it i found yeah. it to be an enjoyable episode i mean there's enough here to chew on there's enough here to consider that this episode is well worth um uh, the investment in time and to double back really quickly on some of the stuff that you were saying about the acting mm-hmm. we we talked a couple of weeks ago or i guess Uh, which was the one where they were all Logie? I guess it was a couple of weeks ago Uh, the immunity immunity syndrome syndrome, right Um, there was nothing believable about Shatner's acting in that episode there was very little believable about the writing there was nothing believable about his acting when he becomes Sargon in this episode Mm -hmm. there is just I mean not I mean barring the first time Sargon has not literally walked in a physical body in half a million years so the first time he's in Kirk's body he's like he's sort of like the tin man right after they oil him in, mm-hmm. uh, in the Wizard of Oz, but after that, the rest of the times that Sargon inhabits Kirk's body, it, it, it's just—I mean, this—and this is where Shatner actually is an actor. It's subtle. Yeah. There, there's just yeah. there's just a change in his body language. There's just a little bit of a change in his posture. Now, of course, it's not hurt by the fact that they, you know, over process his voice to let us know, okay, he's inhabited by this guy right now. But even if they hadn't inhabited, had him be, an, you know, change the voice. There was still enough of a visual cue from Shatner that wasn't crazy, that wasn't over the top, that wasn't, you know, sawing the air with his hand thus. I mean, it was just it was just subtle that you knew that there was somebody else there. And that I mean, it's it's little things like that that actually make this episode um, that sell this episode, I think. Yeah. And And,
2: and everybody gets to do that. You know, Spock gets to do that. uh, uh, Dinah Muldara's as Mulholl. Uh, slash Thalesa gets to do that and it's a lot of fun to watch them and and on top of all of that I would say that there's a great love story here. I think the Sargon Thalesa uh, uh, their relationship is believable and it's part of what this episode hinges on and I really love that when Kirk slash Mulhall find themselves in these embraces that they get to enjoy it a bit. And it's not that kind of salacious leering. I'm checking out the yeoman kind of thing. Mm -hmm. This is much more mature. And it's really great.
0: So now I I said, I don't know what the messages are. And if there are messages, I don't know that I agree. I mean, did, did you feel like you pulled a particular message? I mean, is there one that you could look at point it to it and go, okay, here's, here's what we're saying.
2: Oh, right, right. Well, see, that's the problem. And you know, I, I wrote down these notes thinking like, well, well, these are the little things that I pick up on. Um, you, you can't live on mind power alone. And yet flesh is a powerful temptation. But hey, it's just better to cast yourself into oblivion than to be trapped in a robot. That was <laughs> for you, Ken.
0: That's a, um, see, that's a crappy <laughs> message. I think that's a crappy I know, message.
2: I <laughs> because, it, you know, it, we say that and we end up with that in the episode. But at the same time, you kind of sit there in, if not awe, at least with a deep kind of respect for Sargon and what his people have done, you know, to, to be able to carry on, to be able to keep their consciousness alive, you know. So it, it's hard to really pin that down to a message. Uh-huh. I was being more jokey and writing those down. So, yeah, I, I don't know that there's a message. I just, I, I think this kind of exists in this space where you get to look at it and you go, oh, okay, well, here's another society that grew too fast, that destroyed itself in the process, and maybe they're trying to learn something from it. Um, it's valuable stuff, but I don't know if that's what this episode is truly about. I don't think it is. Uh, but what we do get to experience here is all the cool character stuff, all the neat ideas of this episode without there being a heavy handed message but i'll remind everybody go back and check out that discovered document because you'll see what the writer wrote out as his intention for the messages and the points to ponder in this story
0: so pretty cool we got what you think we got what i think we have access to what the writer thought so i guess the only thing left is what do people listening think Tell them how they can tell us, John.
2: <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I would love it if they told us via Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. All three of those places can be reached at Mission Log Pod. You can even call us at 323-522-5641. And you can email us, missionlog at roddenberry.com. Uh, don't forget, we have a homepage on the internet called missionlogpodcast.com. That's where you'll find not only back-issue episodes of Mission Log Podcast, but you will find the discovered documents. And remember, if you leave us a comment, we may be tempted to use it in an upcoming episode of Mission Log.
0: Next week, we'll use the Force, John. Oh, maybe not. We will, however, examine patterns of Force.
1: Of the music for the mission log provided by warp 11 online at warp 11.com and from the album messages by key theory free to download at k i theory.com next week no robots i may not even bother showing up And transmission now leaving Nerdist.com.